The views are stunning up high above this hanging valley. I can see the first bog we crossed and the river Karnak digging its deep and winding trench down to the gorge. We're surrounded by humongous Monroes, the tallest mountains in Scotland, but it's a surprisingly easy crossover before heading down on good, well at least obvious, track. Massive waterfalls crash down from every mountain in this valley, and we move fast on the wet and rocky terrain. Barrisdale Bay appears, surrounded by shapely mountains, a deep blue under sunny skies. I walk behind Ted and Ian, where I like to linger and snap pictures and watch, and suddenly Ian wipes out on mud, falling fast as if on ice. He's fine, and I pay no attention, laughing actually when he hops right back up. And maybe I should have paid attention or been a bit more humbled by his fall, because my turn is next. Down I go, fast and out of control, sliding right into a rock. I hit my head on the rock! I hit my head! I scream, but the sound of my tin cup smacking hard gets their attention. It's so loud as if my skull cracked open, but it might be what saved me, since my cup was stored in the aptly named brain of my pack, hitting first with my skull ricocheting. A huge purple lump appears almost immediately. It seems to be only a bruise, but aren't all head injuries dangerous? You always seem to read about someone hitting their head and saying they feel fine, only to drop dead minutes later. I stand up and put my pack back on. Ever so slowly, I start to walk and lead the way down, one foot carefully placed in front of the other. I'm diligent looking now for any more sloppy mud that took me out. The guys follow, not saying much, just trying to push me along. When I begin to talk to myself, afraid I won't see Richard ever again, Ian assures me it's just a bump. Well, I seem to be okay, one step at a time, but is it just a bump? I reach up and touch my head over and over to see if the lump is getting any bigger. Am I seeing double? Do I know my name and street address? I start to say the alphabet backwards. Good grief. I don't want this fall to end another backpack trip. Heck, I don't care about the trip. I don't want this fall to end my life. J, K, J, H, I, I, H, R. You're listening to the Blissful Hiker Podcast. I'm Allison Young, the Blissful Hiker, sometime professional flutist, sometime voice artist, and full-time pedestrian. Thanks so much to Lecky Trekking Poles and Belega Socks for their support. Also, Summit Orthopedics in the Twin Cities, my choice for two total hip replacements. My goal in sharing stories of walking long-distance trails as a solo, female, middle-aged, titanium-reinforced hiker is to empower you to learn to hike your own hike, too. It's only day four of the Cape Wrath Trail in the western highlands of Scotland, and rain has become such an integral part of the hike. I'm getting used to it, happy to hear it thrashing the boffy. It comes in spurts as if flung at the windows. But I'm snug in Big Greeny, my western mountaineering sleeping bag, on a huge wooden platform, 
slightly hidden from the other campers by a screen of drying socks and rain gear. Tall Ian stirs first, putting on waterproofs, boots, and gaiters, followed by Jacob, who, though petite and young, snored much of the night. Ted and I let out the air from our mattresses in tandem, and soon all four of us are cooking breakfast and discussing our plans for the day. We're in Noidart, at least Noidart's rough bounds, likely the only wilderness left in the UK. Last night was just a taste of its challenges, a mere six miles taking us almost as many hours to shuffle through. It's described in the Cicerone Guide as rough underfoot, certainly rougher than anything I've walked, including New Zealand. But inside this lovely place, it's stone with a concrete floor, so when I say lovely, I mean more the striking location at the edge of a lock. It's easy to feel tough and strong, bragging of all the walks I've done and those that I hope for. But back to Noidart. It's said, so Jacob tells me, the name comes from the Norse and a certain Newt's Fjord. I chew the words in my mouth and see how they could become Noidart, or as the Scots call it, Noidert. But this is the same Jacob who told me to tip the butler at our next bothy, so consider the source. It's a rough and lonely place, piles of colorful seaweed on our front lawn. Life must have been hard for those early inhabitants. It's a place for views, not life, it would seem. We pack up, and Ted invites Ian to tackle the first section together. It begins with a short beach walk, then a clamor over the head to a massive bog with a bridge far on the end over an uncrossable river. Jacob told us in mist, you better take a bearing or you'll get sucked in the bog searching for the bridge. He apparently fell into his mid-thigh. But it's clear in light this morning, a rainbow bright overhead. We stay far to the side before working our way towards Karnak, studying the grass, as Ted would say, to find lumps that hold our feet as we look for ways to cross deceptive mud patches that will eat a leg whole, plus channels covered in gracefully flowing weeds that hide four-foot-deep burns. My Scotland sojourn is a lesson in living. Each day I've been here, it's rained, oftentimes hard and cold. Yet it passes quickly, and the sun comes out brilliantly, shining on the rock and creating some of the most unusual light I've ever seen, a sort of deep yellow contrasted with somber shadow, and inevitably a rainbow or two. But all things change, the good and the bad. And my heartbeat. Oh, for God's sake, why now? What causes SVT to come on? I really don't know. Too much leaping? Moving fast in the morning? Not enough breakfast? Okay, just a recap. Over the years, I've developed supraventricular tachycardia. It's an arrhythmia with no known cause that comes on suddenly, causing an abnormally fast heart rate. Mine's jumped from 70 to 180 almost immediately, leaving me weak, out of breath, dizzy, and on the verge of fainting. Earlier this summer, a constellation of events brought it on so bad in Montana, including 100-degree temperatures, massive blowdowns to climb over, and constant vigilance for grizzly bears— 
that I hit a point where I couldn't move at all, and I had to be helicoptered out. I thought I'd wasted the EMT's time, even though the views were spectacular from the helicopter. But the doctors told me there is some risk of losing consciousness, and that would have made me a snack for predators. There is treatment for SVT in a surgical ablation that cuts off access for the aberrant electrical signal that causes the problem. But when I got back to St. Paul, we couldn't repeat the event, so we couldn't find the problem. No matter, my wonderful cardiologist Dr. Zukowski told me, and he gave me a supply of beta blockers, which seemed to be working. And so I pop one in right now. And there's no better place to wait for my heart rate to drop than at this stunning place of ruins below massive mountains in sunshine, a rainbow arched perfectly above. You're listening to the Blissful Hiker Podcast. In a series of personal essays coupled with found sound and my own flute playing, this podcast explores my journey of self-discovery as a middle-aged woman, sharing the sometimes unglamorous but vital truth about empowerment as badass people who don't need permission to blaze our own trails in this journey we call life. As I sit here in this beautiful location, I wave Ian on. But Ted comes over to tell me that Ian wants to wait with us because three is better than two in this wild country. Slowly, I feel better. I pack up and snag some gummy bears, and I work my way through more marsh towards a deep ravine. This land is set up for stalking or hunting deer. A massive green mat is laid on the track in a few places, so vehicles won't get sucked in. But we leave all of that once we sidle the raging river over a complex maze of stones. It's a jungle gem amidst wiry oak trees. A red-throated diver easily sails through and makes me jealous. Every moment is heightened concentration. Where to place your feet, how to balance your sticks, which approach to take. And I love it. Even when I slide down a flat rock towards an eddy and carefully straddle a stone that I can then lunge up from onto another set of rocks and a bit of a stair step. Right now, Dr. Stromer at Summit Orthopedics would be so proud of his work, making me bionic. When we finally leave this riparian enclave, it's back onto boggy grass heading steeply up to a long, high valley under the massive Monroe Ben Aden. Ian comments our photos make this walking look easy. Nowhere can the viewer see the muddy, rocky, ankle-twisting accident waiting to happen that is tramping in Scotland. But it's magical in here, other lesser mountains dotted with gray rocks soaring above, leaking dozens of complex waterfalls into the raging river. One falls comes nearly straight down a flat mountainside, scouring the brown grass aside as if wall art. Another crashes with such urgency, it's carved a sort of double staircase into a pool, which makes its own double staircase. We splash and ooze through the muck as another shower comes through, the raindrops flung from the sky as if spit out. The three of us hike all day in waterproofs, chucking our hoods on and pulling them off for each ten-minute shower. Don't get me wrong, these showers are cold and a nuisance. 
They make things dark and seem far more difficult. But I love these Scottish showers that spatter my protected body as I move through them. I'm living outside now, and I don't think I'd really know this place intimately if everything was blue sky and views all day or easy walking. Ian and I chit-chat most of the way through this hanging valley, looking ahead to the cleft that opens west and will allow us to climb over the Beelock. We finally come to a waterfall that splits into two arms. I easily cross the first, but I'm stopped dead in my tracks at the second. It's obvious how people cross from one flattish stone to another, but the falls are in spate, full on flood, and rushing dangerously down with an urgent warning not to dare cross. One false move here, and your body would clatter down a chute at 50 degrees, banging against rocks all the way. We look above to see if there's an easier crossing, but it's all the same, fast, high, and dangerous. Our route meets a stalker's trail beyond, and Ian, at 6'2 and 31 years old, shocks me by confidently stepping right across the falls to check things out. He returns about 10 minutes later, not entirely certain the way, or if we need to cross yet another falls. But still, Ted gets himself in position to cross, and Ian looks at him with eyes as large as saucers. Are you sure, Ted? Ted stops and looks back at me. Allie, will you do it? I've loaded what's called a GPX track into my phone, one that was recorded by someone else who walked this, and it shows that they did not cross this raging torrent, but rather they contoured high above the spot, beginning about a half mile back. Considering all of this and that there's an alternative, I say, no. It is funny how we get swept into the moment and pulled along by a need to keep moving forward but sometimes you just need to shake off that summit fever and consider your safety. Maybe we could make it across, I mean, Ian did, but Ted and I are both about the same height, 5'7", significantly shorter, and we're older, we're less flexible, and we're less strong. These sorts of moments haunt me later, like that one time I just plowed through a snowfield in the North Cascades on a 60 or 70 degree pitch, just walking quickly, trying not to look down. What the hell was the rush? I mean, I made it across, but had I slipped, I hadn't even bothered to put on my micro spikes or use my ice axe, and I could have slid to the bottom, smashing up my body. Or that time I leapt across a rushing river in the Sierra, risking a fall that might have trapped me underwater without any chance of rescue. It was just dumb and rash when a smarter decision could have been made. So Ian leaps back and we retrace our steps, stepping back into muddy, wet, rocky awfulness, looking for a route up and over. We're feeling defeated and actually a little nervous, realizing how much time we've wasted so far. The days are getting short and it's already close to three o'clock. That's when Ted points straight up and says, If I were on my own, I'd crack up there. Well, okay. And in this time, Ted leads next to a waterfall, 
the two of us following him up, first on stair-steppy grass, then through bracken, all steep but doable. It's kind of like ice climbing, but not really needing ropes as we heave our bodies one big step at a time, high above the river. My calves are burning, with my feet bent back, my toes on small holds. But I love it on this mountainside. It's like a child playing. It's exhilarating, but never really that dangerous. At one point, I have to scream for Ian to keep moving. My legs are killing me. Later, Ted tells me he can't believe we just followed him up. Out of breath, but with SVT only a memory, it's now my turn, and I charge on, looking for the route through the huge rock chunks. I never know for sure what's beyond, because I can't see, but I have my bearing of the track beyond the falls we couldn't cross, and I lead us now on a less steep but still exhausting ascent, sneaking through rocks on grassy bits and navigating up and over. The view behind us reveals a long lochen and forbidding peaks, the sun shining a spotlight through the gloom right on us. Ian can outreach both of us, but Ted and I have a talent for scampering straight up mountainsides, and I reach the rise before either of them. I see the high part of the falls we couldn't cross as well as the bee lock, and maybe most importantly, the route to get there. It's more straight up climbing, the humpy grass easy to negotiate now. Ian worries we'll tire this way, but I think I see a flat line above. Is it trail? By golly, it is! It turns out we never need to cross the falls, as the trail already did so. All we need to do now is join it and walk to the top. After yesterday's long, wet, hard cross, I'm shocked this bee lock is easy. Sort of up and over, then down, with massive waterfalls crashing beside us. We can see the bay below and march quickly, passing bright white quartz extrusions the size of minibuses. The sun is shining now as we speed down, and Ian slips, and I slip right after him, an angry purple lump growing immediately. The two of them minister to me, getting me ibuprofen and water, and ensuring I don't get cold in this shaded area. But it's not far down, maybe a half hour, Realizing now that so much rain is really made for tough and, as it turns out, dangerous hiking. But I'm okay, walking steadily and confidently to the estate in its superb bothy, with running water, flushing toilets, and electricity. The estate owner is a Dutchman named Dirk, who brings me ice for the lump. I eat piles of food with one hand and hold the ice in the other then turn in early as the swelling recedes, fairly certain the hiking will continue. What a day of excitement, play, and near misses. I was challenged by the rain and its effects, but fascinated by how it felt and the light created by such changeable weather. I loved how the three of us clicked as a trio, and each brought something to the table that left us feeling strong and capable, as well as open to the experience. I was bowled over by the exquisite beauty and the grand scale of this place, as well as my privilege to walk through it. And I'm humbled by my fragility and the speed with which things can change. 
You can subscribe to Blissful Hiker wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple to help the show get discovered. Blissful Hiker is also on Patreon right now. You can become a supporter of the show financially as a patron. Help me buy food, get to where I'm going, wash and repair the kit, and also carve out the time it takes to write and record on my hikes. Find a link to Patreon in the show notes or at blissfulhiker.com. Next week, rain, rain, and more rain, but the hike does continue. Until then, my friends, kia kaha and happy trails.